Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Required Reading. The title I regret putting in more and more because apparently I can't pronounce ours. This is your host, Nick. Uh, this week we have returned to having Larita guest with us. Larita Williams is back, along with uh, a new voice, Dr. Shannon Hitt. Their African-American literature class read If Beale Street Could Talk uh, by Dan Baldwin, which became a movie not long ago, which we will talk about I will also announce that we have a couple more episodes this season, but then we will be taking our summer break, as you can imagine, to school, that's what we do. Though I can promise you over the summer there will be new content. I'm going to go over with Mike what it should be, but we promise there will be something new uh, during the summer. I'll have more details next week, don't you worry. And we will be returning for season two next year. Well, next school year. I'm a teacher, that's how I think. So if you have any books you want us to do, feel free to message us. Please write review. Please follow us on Twitter, Required Pod. Um, and we will be trying to keep the interest going, keep the ideas flowing, and come up with something even better for next season. Thanks for all you do. Bye. Welcome to Required Reading. This week we are covering the James Baldwin classic, If Beale Street Could Talk, um, which... For those of you who don't know James Baldwin, I'm sure most of you have at least heard of him, this is a little bit different from his normal writing. He's mostly an essayist, uh, but this is a piece of fiction of his that came out in 2018 as a movie by Barry Jenkins, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into as well. Um, I'm here with my normal co-host, Mike Burns. Hello, good morning. And uh, I'm here with uh, two women who taught this in a class very recently, African American Literature, uh, Dr. Janet Hill. Hi, how are you? And on the third time back, <laughs> Larita Williams. I just love it so much. Hey, y'all. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm just glad I convinced someone to return. <laughs> Other than Mike, you know, who I force here. Yeah. Uh, as, a, here. <laughs> as someone who I co-teach with. Um, so I guess at the very top, uh, we should talk about uh, what brought you to this book for class. But can you talk about the class itself? Yeah, it's please. It's a new thing at our yeah. school. Yeah, yeah please. The, the class is something special. Cool. Um, so I... I guess I just I just jumped in, but Go I didn't mean to step on Go your toes. Yeah, um, this is Dr. Hip's brainchild. Um, you know, something to offer um, an additional opportunity for students in the English curriculum to study contemporary African American authors. Uh, so we dove into four different works, um, and if Bill Street could talk was the only novel. We also read the choreo poem uh, for Colored Girls and. Thomas and Beulah, a collection of poems, and then the first one was Between the World and Me, um, so nonfiction. Um, and just give students a chance to dialogue about important topics um, that are brought up or presented in the book, but also, you know, stuff that seems relevant in today's society. It was really fun. We had a small group this year. We had only eight students, mm -hmm. and they were all seniors, and they were just, we told them at the beginning, we are like, this is the first time, so y'all are helping us build the course, and it couldn't have gone better. It just was a group of kids who were really willing to jump in and share, and they challenged us to think, yeah. and it was an amazing group. Before we talk about the book, I'm curious, like, there's so much good material you could choose for that class, so how did you land on Baldwin in particular? How did you on Baldwin in particular? <laughs> it's funny. Originally, we proposed the course as African-American lit. And I wanted to do a James Baldwin piece because I feel like he's increasingly relevant. Um, and I think when I Am Not Your Negro came out, that was really a powerful movie to me. And I didn't know how much they knew about James Baldwin. And I know some of them read and talk to teachers in American lit mm -hmm. um, as a sophomore. And so I wanted them to read a novel by Baldwin. And 
then when the course got approved, it was suggested that we change the name to yeah. Contemporary African American Lit. And I remember telling Larita that, and he said, James Baldwin? <laughs> <laughs> and then when, this, when the film came out, I mean, I mm-hmm. even think this week that we're talking about this book, like it couldn't be more relevant to the contemporary moment. Right. So yep. um, I'm, I just wanted the students to know more about him and have be able to ha- talk about James Baldwin and, and his influence and also understand the book that that film came out of if they would have seen the film. Very good. So yeah. had either of you taught it before or had it in, you know, in your own personal studies in, in school? So of course I had not taught it. I'm, I'm not the, the professional or the expert um, on the topic at all, but I actually hadn't even read it before. So I was experiencing it along with the students and, you know, as questions uh, came up, I was like, yeah, I wonder about that too. I'm curious. Let's see where it goes. Uh, and Shannon, of course, did a really great job of not spoiling it or, <laughs> or hinting at uh, what was to come and what was to unfold. Uh, but I felt like I got to go along for the ride and enjoy it kind of on both sides of things, you know, leading the conversation uh, as a teacher, but also exploring it as a student for the first time. I guess great modeling that. So having someone that knows the work and then someone that's just yeah. experiencing it with the students, that's, that's great. Uh, I guess uh, stay tuned for our episode on the Batman comic, uh, Arkham <laughs> Asylum, which we'll be recording shortly. Um, but yeah, so... Where in the course did this play, just out of curiosity? Was this the beginning, the end, the middle? It was our third it was our third text. Mm-hmm. So we had done Coates, um, and then we had done um, Shanghai, and then we did Baldwin. So it was our third text. No, it, 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 I was curious because, you're right, the themes seem to play throughout. And so to say contemporary, mm-hmm. you could either start with this class or prove at the end that, yep, yeah, nope, it's all the same. <laughs> right? Um, we just did an American Experiment, an episode of The Twilight Zone called uh, The Monsters on Maple Street where immediately they turn on every, each other and someone gets shot. And it's like, I swear, I was just defending myself. And you're just like, guys, this was written 70 years ago. Right, it was dark. It was, yeah, I thought, I thought he had a gun. You know, I thought he had a gun. and he All sh- too relevant. Yeah. yeah, the monsters are out. Uh, okay, so we should kind of break down this plot. I mean, it's, it's, he writes like an essayist, I will say. Like, there's a lot of uh, single voice narration. There's a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of dialogue. Um, but, I mean... That's neither here nor there. I mean, I'm watching the Hemingway documentary. He writes like a journalist the whole time. He just, Baldwin has a very specific style. Uh, should we talk a little bit about who James Baldwin is, I guess? Why not? Yeah. Uh, I mean, okay. he is an African-American living in New York for most of his life. I think he actually dies in France. Um, yeah, he, was, he lived in Paris he for did, yeah. a long time, 10 years or more. Right? Something like that. And then he came back to the U.S. Yeah. Uh, he is part of not only the African-American movement, but actually part of the LGBT community, writing in a time when that was even more <laughs> faux pas. Uh, and so a lot of his essays, uh, I think I first read of him, uh, The Fire Next Time, uh, was you know also steeped in the sexuality, uh, which is, of course, very omnipresent in this book as well. But there's something in the way that he writes about sexuality and race that makes it seem kind of ubiquitous, um, which is in response to the hypersexualized African-American male that becomes the stereotype of this era, um, which I think is engaging. Um, how did you guys approach it in class? How did, how did he come up as your literary kind of focal point? Do you mean the topic of sexuality or no, just Baldwin, Baldwin himself? himself? Okay. I mean, did the author play much of a role in this part of the class? I remember, I remember discussions about writing style and choices that he made throughout because the narrator is a character in the book, but has this like 
omnipotent viewpoint of everybody. Like she's describing conversations and scenes that she's not present for. Sure. As she's narrating and, and they're talking about her. Um, so that that came up and you know, why did he make that that decision? Um, and I remember it also coming up at the end of the book, and I don't mean to jump to the end, but just to, yeah, just in thinking about like why, why, why this abruptness, or you know, I guess it he, he as a person came up in discussing the writing styles and choices. So yeah, I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to move it too sure. quickly to the end there, but that's that's the takeaway that I have from it. And, and you're fine because Mike <laughs> and I have still never settled on whether or not we're going to spoil the ending of these things. True, right? And I mean, in the last two you were on with me, it was nonfiction. So uh -huh. the, 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 I mean, you're not going to spoil something historical, <laughs> but we'll get there. We might we might tell it this end, if only because it reminds me of this short story we did in class. Um, I mean, for for you for your context. In American Experiment, we're going to do James Baldwin's, what is it, Essay to Teachers? A talk to Teachers. A yeah. Talk to Teachers right. in comparison to the I Have a Dream speech and Malcolm X's ball um, Ballot or the Bullet because they all came out within six months of each other. Yeah, 63. Something like that. Yeah. Um, and so we have the different kind of intellectual, compassionate, critical views coming together. And we're going to do that as a jigsaw coming up in week after next, I think. Something like that. Who knows, yeah. Um, so. Yeah, well, I mean, come on, it's it's almost May the school year. It could, it, it might never happen. Who knows? Uh, but that's just the way the world works in teaching. Uh, so, do either of you want to give us the plot synopsis? Go for it. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, well, the book opens with Tish, and she's the narrator, and a young woman who is in love with a young man named Fanny. Um, who has, we find out very early in the book, two things that are significant. One, that Tish has discovered that she's pregnant with Fani's child, and two, that Fani has been incarcerated. Um, and as the book goes on, you find out the circumstances under which he was incarcerated, though you know from the beginning that he was innocent, and Tish's family, who has a great love for Fani and sees him basically as a member of their family, even though he and Tish are not married, Tish and Fani grew up together as young kids. Um, and so Tish's family is determined to do everything they can to get him out of jail. Mm -hmm. And also to support and nurture Tish through her pregnancy and help to make sure that um, this baby gets into the world healthy and well. So it's sort of two parallel stories of the effort to get Fani out of jail and the effort to bring this baby into the world. So the pregnancy and the um, time in which they're fighting for, for Fani to get out are sort of Parallel stories. Excellent. What did I leave out, Lorita? No, I love that. And and I think of it as those parallel stories is like possibility or like what what is to come, kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop in both in both cases. Like, um, what are we gonna do with this new baby in our family? And then also what are we gonna do about getting Fani out of jail and figuring things out? Like just just kind of the unknown. Exactly. And and just we talked about this before we started recording, but uh, the Beale Street is set in New York City. But you might think, and before I read this, I thought Beale Street, I thought Memphis, and but it's New York City. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we're debating whether there's an actual Beale Street in New York. So <laughs> there's a Beale Street in all there's my people out there who know. All right. Um, let us know. Um, but New York itself is sort of a character. In yeah, this. I was going to yeah. say that. I mean, it's sort of in the tradition of, you know, uh, other novels, like A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, or The Sun Also Rises, or Invisible Man, in which this place names are extremely specific. It's funny that. There, the Beale Street in the title might be a reference to Memphis, is a reference to Memphis, to the W.C. Handy song. But 
that you can walk other parts of the novel. Right. Literally, you know, there are enough street directions, locations where you can sort of trace the steps of where they are. So it's very place oriented. Is there like a walking tour of this novel? Like there is I don't know. Ones? Yeah, I don't know. There might be. Interesting. If there can be a walking sh- like tour of Seinfeld, uh, there's a walking <laughs> tour of There should be, probably. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure there is. I'm sure someone out of the back of a cheap van just drives around the area with maps. Yeah. Um, so uh, I guess we can get into some of these characters a little bit, right? Let's, let's talk about it. Um, so uh, writing as Tish, our narrator, who is kind of the dominant leading figure in this character. She's 19, it? right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think uh, Phony's supposed to be uh, 21, something like that? Yeah, that sounds so. right. Um, and so sh- this is a kind of a mixture of stories, right? Because she's born and raised in Harlem, but Beale Street's supposed to be in the East Village, right? in Greenwich Village somewhere. And she, uh, we get a lot into like who she is, how she fits into this world, right? She's supposed to be uh, skinny and uh, she's scared and she's developing and like it's part like, and all the flashbacks go to her and her kind of first experiences with him. And we talk about like her developing sexuality and how she becomes a woman. And then the question becomes, you know, who are the adults who's acting maturely throughout? Because as much as her family welcomes him in, his family hates that he's a part of this situation. They don't get along at all. Um, and the scene that sticks out of my head, obviously, other than the ending, which is very dramatic, uh, is the scene where they're all inviting to dinner to announce that, that she's pregnant. Yeah. That's, it's on one hand hilarious and dramatic and <laughs> touching and awful because the one family doesn't want to be there at all. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think it's terrifying. Yeah, I would say our, I don't remember our students finding it funny at all. Like, I think they're yeah. kind of horrified by that scene. Um, just in, you know, just in the way that it happens, because they were really, my, our, our students were really interested in the amount of love that is in Tish's family and the strength of that family and the way that they're portrayed in the book. So I think that the way that that unravels mm-hmm. was really troubling to them. And I don't think they expected for so much animosity to come from Fani's own family um, towards just his situation and not wanting to support and then not wanting to see the two kids together. Uh, it might have been like shocking to them, you know, coming from loving families and not and seeing another side of that or a lack of support. Well, I just as specifically the mother, um, uh, Sharon. Is, is Tish's mother, I think, right? Yes, Tish's mother, yeah. She is the most incredible, like, brassy character. Because, like, on one hand, she she's the one who wants to invite Fonny's whole family over. She kind of... It's that knowing you have a secret that no one else knows, inviting over... She's the one I find very powerful and funny in that scene. But then she's also the one who goes to Puerto Rico. Yeah. Like, it's just... It's amazing how much agency on one hand she has, um, but since it's not her story, it, it's just it's such a unique character. I don't see that kind of character very often in literature, right? <laughs> Everyone's looking at me. I, I don't, I don't want to um, take the focus away from literature, but it makes me think of the movie because I just think it was so perfect that they cast Regina King in that role. Mm-hmm. Um, she just brought it to life. And I... I didn't see, I'm, I think I'm with the students. I didn't see the funniness in the scene reading it, but I did see it play out on screen. Uh, and I do remember chuckling through it a few times. It reminded me of just family life, you know, just the antics and where all families are a little messy, a little crazy. 
Sure. Uh, we could talk about the movie briefly. It's Barry Jenkins, uh, the Academy Award-winning director of um, Moonlight as yep. well, uh, the one that they got wrong at the Academy Award and had to change, which was great. Uh, he also directed some of uh, Dear White People, among other things, which is good. I mean, he's directed a handful of things, and he did the series on the Underground Railroad, which I believe is on PBS this year. Uh, and he's... Disney took a truck full of money up to him, and he's doing the prequel to The Lion King, the live-action Lion King next year, which is just going to be a train wreck. <laughs> the Lion Queen yeah. prequel, uh, untitled, uh, it cost $180 million, and it's going to come out. Uh, it's the prequel to the live-action one. So... I'm glad he's making his money. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Moonlight and this is never going to make a dime, but he's going to make a lot of money off of a Lion King movie. <laughs> oh, gross. Well, I hate those live action to movies. Because I remember you told me this, Shannon, when you were talking to your students, that the love that this family shows. And so when they invite the um, Fonny's family over, I mean, just sort of thinking as a novelist, not I'm not a novelist, but trying to imagine what a novelist, if you think Baldwin shows the sort of the fractured nature of the other side of the family just to jack up the conflict or to show, to deepen the sense of love that, that the family has in that sense of sacrifice that they're going to do everything they can to get Fonny out and support Tish. Uh, so just, just to give a contrast. Right, yeah, I don't know. I'm just... I also think or something that we talked about a lot was Mrs. Hunt. When you said the mother, I actually was thinking of Fonny's mother before oh, you sure. said Sharon. Sharon went there too, yeah. Because she's mean, kind of the villain. She's the villain. I mean, and from the very exactly. beginning, right. even before that moment, talks about like Mrs. Hunt taking Fonny and Tish to church with her and they weren't sanctified enough. And, you know, the kids were just like, oh, I mean, she was the villain and they just had a really hard time with her from the beginning. And then we got into a lot of discussion about religion in this book and the way that um, Mrs. Hunt's religion and spirituality becomes you know really problematic throughout the whole book but that in fact so many other moments in the book are really sacramental the scene we talked a lot about the scenes that happen around a meal you know sitting down together and sharing food and drink happens over and over and over in this mm -hmm. book to bring literal communion to an understanding among the people who are going through difficult times um so we i also think that the hunt family and specifically mrs hunt and the conflict of religion establishes a theme that plays out through definitely the whole book. because there there are religious like terms used in non-religious spaces throughout the book too right mm -hmm. so there's like this imagery painted and i i think the the religion that religion is used um to like show a contradiction i guess between I don't know, Miss Hunt is upholding it, upholding religion as this is the pinnacle, this is the ideal, but really it's just about optics. It's just about superficial, the look of it. Yes, right. right? It's superficial. It's not necessarily a deep commitment to faith. It's just we want people to see us as this perfect family um, who does everything right and we're in step together. Um, and I wonder, this wasn't explicit in the book, and I don't even think we talked about it in class, but I wonder if there's another contradiction that Baldwin is trying to hint at between religion and discrimination against the LGBTQ community uh -huh. because he's highlighting this contradiction of hmm. faith in individuals. Uh -huh. You know, it could just be something that maybe he contended with as a person. That works for me. <laughs> well, I was looking through my book before we met this morning and I had forgotten that when Sharon goes to Puerto Rico and confronts Mrs. Rogers, or yeah, I think that's her name. Uh -huh. um, she has she a, a cross on. Yeah. Right. She has a gold cross and that, and it like, the spark for when they really she turns on Sharon is when she goes to touch her cross right. and it's like this is the border you don't cross like mm. you don't cross someone's again sort of like strong outer display of religiosity that's like you can't cross that line <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Uh, and I guess we should catch up to the plot here then. Um, so we have this kind of scene where they're trying to, well, I guess we should get into it. Uh, Vani's in prison for sexual assault, right? And uh, the problem is the only witness, the woman who was the victim, has gone back to Puerto Rico, right? Um, and this is also kind of, I guess, a reference to New York City in general, where there's a Puerto Rican community, an African-American community, and they're kind of abutting against each other in these neighborhoods, um, which feels very distant from the white neighborhoods where the only white characters really are the cops uh, in this story, right? And that's the kind of bubbles that they're dealing with. Um, and so Rogers and... Uh, um, I just lost everyone's name in my head. <laughs> I'll edit this. Um, Sharon and Rogers kind of colliding is those neighborhoods over like lapping in some way. And her in Puerto Rico feels like this fish out of water story. And it's, it's, it, it's almost like a travel book for a second there. She lands in a new place and has to find transportation and has to find a place to stay, tracks down this woman. It's very aggressive. It's a very interesting scene, which is, very different from the home and the heart that we get for the entire first half of the book. Um, so how did this scene kind of play in your class? How did you teach this? Because I, I don't know, I've never taught this before. And it's a very aggressive scene. Tracking down a woman accusing your daughter's boyfriend of sexual assault. Uh, well, is, yeah, he's more than that to their family, though, because he grew up with them. Like, they, they've they known Fani since he was a child. So right. it might it might feel like more than just your daughter's boyfriend. And I think that's why she goes so hard for him. That's why, you sure. know, she she runs into a lot of walls in that trip to Puerto Rico, but she keeps trying. She keeps going after and asking new people and, and wondering and walking around and talking and just like, let me let me do one more thing and, you know, Hail Mary. But um, I don't know, I don't wanna, let me, let me flip through and, and see what my notes were on how this scene played out. I think too, it's not just Fonny, who they who is basically a member of their family, it's the father of her grandchild. Sure. And so the again that the fact of Tish's pregnancy is like the propulsion for everything because we're gonna bring this baby into the world safely. We're gonna get his dad, you know, here safely because he deserves to have a father and Fonny is a wonderful man and will be a wonderful father. And all of this was, you know, a horrible, horrible turn of events that landed him in jail. Sure. I remember one of the things that we t I talked about, maybe, that I think is remarkable about Sharon is when she leaves and she goes to Puerto Rico, although she's a fish out of water, she's comfortable yes. in the club. She, you know, right. used to be a singer. This is this is a foreign country, but she is there on her own terms and uh, connecting with a part of herself that has sort of been dormant as a mother. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking about the one scene when she goes to the store and she's like, I'm alone. I don't have to be caring for buying food even for my family. Right. And she said, like, you know, I always had to buy food for them. I couldn't poison them. Like, that's what <laughs> yeah. and I said to the kids, I read, I read, related to that as a mother of, like, not that you ever would think of poisoning them, but, like, every purchase you make at the store is to be nutritious and healthy and to provide. And suddenly she's, like, completely sort of free from all that, even though her task is ultimately for her family. Yeah. yeah, the idea of sacrifice is a theme, certainly. Like, she sacrificed her, her dreams of being a singer, and maybe she's, they want to nurture that in Fani, his artistic ambitions, right. and that same sort of idea to, to provide for your children what you couldn't provide for yourself. Or um, Yeah. Um, I just think of, you know, Baldwin, I just, I didn't read, I read Talk to Teacher, and then I 
also taught um, Sonny's Blues before, which is, again, that's sort of that line of what is art and what is a sacrifice to create art. So as you're talking about that, and, um, it, it's an interesting, probably through line through many of his works, at least the ones I've read. So I can't claim to have read him widely. Sure. I was wondering how um, the kind of sexual assault part of this played in class. If only, like, this is a much more aware, I, I hope, aware era, you know, post Me Too and stuff. Like, I don't know, maybe it's just that we know that Phony's probably innocent, but it just feels very, again, it just feels very something. This woman really was sexually assaulted. Yeah. And the only play we get in this is that they're trying to exonerate the person who's been accused. You know, I'm just saying, like, it's, it's just very interesting. And in the 19, uh, this is written in the early 60s, right? Early 50s. 74. 74, okay, so yeah. early 70s. Um, there, it's just, it's a very different world where the idea is, I mean, uh, Officer Bell, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. has been kind of harassing this relationship from the beginning. Like, the, the first, one of the first date flashbacks we have, um, there's a scuffle between Fawny and this guy who's harassing Tish, right? And Bell's the first one who shows up. Now, uh, he's arrested. So, the, I mean, obviously, the, the police are the other here. They're, they're the people who don't belong in the environment. They're in the environment. And every time they show up, someone disappears. They get taken away, right? It's, it's like a bad sci-fi movie where there's a monster and he just pulls people out of this world. But there's still a woman who's sexually assaulted in this book that is just kind of abandoned in Puerto Rico. So it's, it's I don't know, it's just, it feels like a kind of story that would not be told in the same way today. You talked about the um, maybe heightened social awareness present day around sexual assault, but I think it's present in this book also Mm -hmm. because I remember a conversation we had in class around just how they discussed the, the, the assault victim. They never, they never discredited her story or her experience. Mm -hmm. They just knew and were trying to prove that Fani was not connected to it. They never said she's lying. They never said, you know, this is outlandish. They just said, Hey, he wasn't the one. He wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that kind of, that speaks volumes. That's good. And I'd say our students recognized that. Yeah. They were very yeah, they were very aware and they spoke up to the fact that it it was meaningful to them that she was never made to be, you know, unreliable or anything in that sort, but mm-hmm. that she was a, a, par- a character on her own with her own agency. That's great. No, I'm just I was I'm curious. It's it's not I don't teach a lot of sexual assault scenes in class, so I'm glad that students picked up on that. It, I mean, the pre- presentation of sex in this book as a whole is something we talked about. Sure, sure. <laughs> There's some explicit scenes. The, the, yeah. the first one, the first explicit sex scene early on in the book, because again, I didn't know where the book was going. I didn't know that this is going to be a recurring theme throughout. I, it was drawing to me. I was like, what is the smut that Shannon has our kids <laughs> So uh, then, then the issue is, do you talk about it in class? Do you, I mean, where do you go? I mean, you have to know your audience, obviously, and the students. So did they want to talk about it or how do you all approach they that? They did not want to talk about it. Okay. I remember sure. trying to, to broach the subject with them and things definitely got quiet and right. awkward. Uh, but it seemed to me like they warmed up over time um, as they started to pick out that imagery and just the way that things were framed um, or how sex could have been used as analogies for other things in other parts of the book. But that explicit sex scene and then the other one where Fonny and Tish are together for the first time, we didn't get into details about that. They're high schoolers. Right. 
But I do think that they, as the book unfolded and it, it came to more and more light that sexual assault had been, you know, the crime for which Fonny was accused and the way that Mrs. Rogers was portrayed, that sort of justified what we had seen at the beginning, right? right? So to me, too, the um, at the end when Fonny, there's sort of the vision of Fonny working on the wood at the beginning of part two. And it's so, to me, that's the antidote to the sexual assault because he is, you know, about to carve this wood and he respects it so deeply and it the, the language is almost as though he's looking at a woman's body you know he's sort of walking around he's talking to it he's like respectfully thinking about you know he does not want to touch it he knows that he must but he does not want to defile the wood and so i think that presentation of the kind of artist he is of course shows that he could never be mm-hmm. the t- same person who would assault any other person mm-hmm. right it's another act of creation both the sexuality and as the artist there right, right. Well, I mean, and I guess to point, it's the reason why Frank and Alice Hunt are trying to separate themselves from their son because of the horrible nature of the crime. Um, and it's not necessarily to say that they trust authority or not, but it's the stigma of sexual assault. Like they, they're very uncomfortable with it. Uh, and so they seem to have almost, you know, disenfranchised their son uh, because of the nature of this. But I think Mrs. Hunt never liked Fonny very much to begin with. Oh, no, absolutely. So it's not, I don't think that it's this particular accusation that turns her from him. So, um, Nick, you brought up, you know, that first encounter and the date flashback with Officer Bell. And this was one of my favorite scenes in the book. So I, I want to dig into that a little more if y'all are up for Go, it. Go, please. Well, I didn't want to start. Go for it. <laughs> you, you got it. Um, what stood out to me, and there's so many things, uh, but what, what stuck with me from the conversation with students about this scene is how Tish inserts herself between Fani and the officer um, physically and tries to stand between them and protect them and, and say, hey, you know, there's no trouble here. We're all good. And, you know, just diffuse the situation and how Fani was offended by that act. As much as he was offended by the officer's initial attack, right? Um, and talked to her later about it and said, don't ever do that again. Don't ever try to protect me. And that stood out to me, I think, as a Black woman, because, you know, Black men get it from all sides in this country. And it's, it's a tough experience, um, just societally. Um, and Black women want to protect Black men, sons, uh, spouses, brothers. I'm in this situation. I have a lot of brothers. I have a boyfriend. I have a dad. And I, I felt that moment. But... Um, it's just another form of the same infantilization that they get from society. It's another form of diminishment that they also get from society that I, I guess I hadn't thought about before. Like him being offended that Tish would step in and try to protect him is like, the officer won't let me be my own man. And now you also won't let me be my own man. Where can I have, have my human dignity? Mm-hmm. Well, and we say this is a flashback. It's only a few months before because this is the night that the baby's conceived, right? So if she's pregnant now, it was within within a few months. Right. Um, and this is also the inciting incident in many ways because this is what Officer Bell is going to, whatever, blacklist uh, phony because apparently after this, this is when he's going to be fingered at some point along the way uh, for the sexual assault. Um, I also like... This is also where uh, New York becomes a character again because, like, everyone starts pouring out of the nearby restaurants. There's like an old Italian woman. <laughs> Every like, like again, the, the city comes alive to protect these young lovers, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, it's 
if it wasn't so well written, it'd be a very cheesy scene out of like a Spider-Man movie where the city comes to protect him. And, um, it's fantastic. Right. Along those lines, did you talk in your class about masculinity, um, the fathers, mm. Fanny's father and Tisha's father, because they play a key role. And I just wonder how, how you guys approach that or what you, what you talked about. I think that reading Between the World and Me before this, even though we sort of oh, yeah. intentionally switched off between male and female writers. So we did like a male writer, a female writer. Sure. And But Between the World and Me, we had talked a lot about black masculinity, male identity, and um, the ways in which society is set up and infantilizes black men and is assaulting the black body in all kinds of ways. Um, and so I think that that was a great setup for thinking about um, Frank and Joseph and two fathers that handled the situation really differently. Very differently, yeah, yeah. Um, and then seem to internalize it differently also because um, Fanny's father takes a, a very sad fate at the end of the novel. Um, and so it's just a matter of, you know, do you mentally overcome this, this toughness uh, in the way that Tisha's father does or do you let it succumb you? Mm-hmm. And it is what they do along the way as they're trying to like raise money and, and support their families. And um, I don't want to give anything away, but um, we'll get there. It's complicated. I mean, I think yeah. there's all kinds of ways in which this book explores units and dynamics between people. So that, of course, the family unit, but then also, you know, Frank and Joseph have their meeting at the bar where they where yeah. they talk about what they're going to do. And Joseph really tries to say, like, we can do this. You know, Frank, we can you know try and hustle and make money and raise the money that we need to get them out. And then it sort of parallels with Tish and Ernestine who have their meeting and talk about what they're going to do. So there are also these great moments in the book where characters sort of divide along gender lines to work together, to collaborate, to try and accomplish a goal. Well, and we've talked about comparing the, the mothers, right? But we should talk about the fathers for a second. Like um, uh, Frank, right, was a tailor and owned the shop and then lost the shop and now was a crippling alcoholic. And then Joseph is kind of this working class guy, right? He's a, works at the docks, he's a seaman, right? Like he's a merchant guy, merchant seaman. And so I just, I, my wife was more working class growing up and I just, uh, her dad was a factory guy. And so like that scene where we're gonna make the house nice, we're gonna bring out the nice food and drink because the other family's coming over. You know, I, I recognize that in them where there's this idea like, they have a nice house, they've worked hard for it, so they're going to put on these airs for these people who come over. Because of course you do, you're proud of what you've earned. And, you know, Frank is, I mean, we can talk about him, but with a character like Alice in the house, he does really feel head-packed. He really feels beaten down and broken by this woman. Um, and then he is a failure. He's lost the shop, he's now an alcoholic. And then knowing this to ply some motivation out of him, Frank gets drunk. <laughs> It's just, it's, it's, it's a tragic case because you get the feeling he would help his son more, but his wife is holding mm -hmm. him back. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I, I, I get that mentality and because it's Baldwin also, they get to the difference in um, skin tone as well, yeah. uh, which is so fascinating. So, I don't know. What it, I, I just, I, I, I'm jealous and Mike and I are on our back foot here because we haven't taught this. I'm, I'm, I'm just curious because this book to me, on one hand, if you had a group of kids and they had to pick novels to choose, I imagine a lot would choose this because it seems short, but it's so dense, right? <laughs> right the pro and, and the prose isn't even intimidating. It's really easy to read, but you'll read a paragraph and you'll, 
I was jilted a lot of time. I was just like, what is, what did I just read? Again, especially those date scenes where it seems like everything's going fine. And, you know, I've been on dates before where one thing goes wrong and it bugs at you. And they're trying to gloss over it. They're like, let's just continue the date. It'll be fine. Dude, it everything mm -hmm. snowballs in this book. Nothing happens without purpose. And that's kind of why I like Baldwin's writing. Um, uh, I'll, I'm going to recommend when we get to it. I, I also read The Fire Next Time, like I mentioned before. He doesn't waste a word. He's one of the greatest essayists I've ever read. And that's why this book is so interesting. I don't read a lot of fiction that's structured like this either. Right? Um, I don't know who he read to get to this point. But Toni Morrison said he was an inspiration to her. And I can see that. Mm -hmm. Um, in everything I've read, so. Yeah, just from a logistics point of view, how long did you spend with this work? Were you talking about it every day? Did they read it on their own? Did you, I guess you read it together? We, we read it on our own kind of piecemeal and then would, you know, assign a few pages that, a night and then discuss those, that section the next day in class. How much time did we spend on it totally? Though? Maybe a week, week and a half? I think maybe a little longer. I was yeah. gonna say maybe. I mean, this year is so strange because we've met only a few times per week. So mm -hmm. I was gonna say maybe like three weeks we spent on it. Really? Okay. It went by fast. <laughs> I enjoyed it. <laughs> you know, the other things, and I don't want to derail us, but we there, there's a lot of music in this book. Sure. Um, so we kind of took a day and you know talked about music and songs that engage some of the same themes, and so we pulled in some other stuff related to sort of make it relevant as well. Excellent. Well. Do you want to wrap? Oh, please, please. No, I was just. Gonna, I'm curious um, to to Nick's point that as reading it, it seems very familiar, all too familiar with the issues that are in it. But then it's still unpredictable, like in ways that it, it takes twists that I, I didn't see coming. I thought I saw it coming. That oh, I knew where this is going, and then it, it goes in a different direction. I'm wondering what you guys thought of the lawyer, mm. the white lawyer, or how that came up in class. Because I had a view of what I thought this character was going to be, and then. Was slightly different. Though. Yeah. Did that did that come up at all Go in ahead. discussions? What? No. <laughs> no, I I do think he's an interesting character. I'm glad you brought it up. I I want to talk about him also, but I don't want to start. You start. Uh, I I think that yeah, the kids were quick. You know, immediately you think like, okay, he's just out for the money. Right. He's just another white guy who is trying to profit off of injustice and sort of have this. Um, appearance of liberalism that he is really trying to help the cause and because then, it, just to be explicit the idea that like they it's tish's sister who connects with this guy and he seems like oh he's a good guy but then he keeps coming back for more money and just think right. oh he's just milking them so mm -hmm. right yeah and then you know i think our students were like you know why does sharon go to puerto rico like he doesn't go to help at all but then he does give her the information that she needs to try and do it so i i think that he presented a complexity in like Okay, what are we to think that he's not a simple right. one-way figure? But I remember talking about him also, and you know, students brought up that he, he seems naive, mm -hmm. um, just about how the case is going to play out, about the injustice itself, and just maybe naively optimistic and not really digging into the weeds of everything that's surrounding this case and, and what it means um, in a larger view. Go for it. No, I was just going to say what it reminded me of with you and I is just mercy. Mm. Like to me, reading this from a person's perspective, like the parents, of course we want him to do more. But to me, having read just mercy, it seems like he's also dealing with 500 other cases because he's the only one helping African-Americans in the community. Right. Like yeah. that. And like, yeah, he, he, and like you said, he does actually seem to be working on the case. It just seems like he disappears from other, I mean, 
like a bad contractor. But to me, like that's what it reminded me of Just Mercy, where he was like, he would pop in and everyone would fawn over him because he showed up. But he also has 600 other people in line behind him. And so I, I, you're right. Like they could have villainized him. I don't think they villainized him. I think he was doing what he could. But in a real sense, there's urgency in the book. And he can't respond because he's there's 600 other people who are it's just as urgent. It's yeah. the system that's a villain, so to speak. I don't know. But the way he came into the room, and at least one scene I'm thinking of in particular, just felt larger than life. It's, oh, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. And, you know, brushing over just broad strokes of things. And how how's, how's the husband? And how's everything right. at home? Like, mm -hmm. not really focusing on what we need to talk about or feeling like you're giving true time and attention to it. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it felt a little pompous, a little overconfident. Yeah, you know, that felt like a distraction. Like, he's not he doesn't know what's going on. So he's just going to try to sweet talk to people. Yeah, and, yeah. and like he's inflating the sense of connection that he exactly. really has with these people. True. <laughs> well, I remember one thing we, that we haven't discussed at all that we talked about a lot was the way that names work in this book. Yes. And so that sometimes characters are Mrs. Hunt and sometimes it's Alice and sometimes it's Tish. And what I remember about Hayward is that he refers to Fonny as Alonzo and Tish sits there and says, it's Fonny. Mm -hmm. It's Fonny. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to pretend like you're helping us, yep. you have to know who we are and what our names are. And we talked a lot in class about like if our students have nicknames and who's allowed to call you by mm -hmm. your nickname and all what how nicknames play in families and relationships. But I remember that to your point, Larita, about larger than life. Like he comes in like he's helping them and he doesn't even know Fonny's name. And he, he tells them to call him by his first name. I forget what it is. Arnold. Okay, there you go. Right. Because it wasn't that. used anymore after that. The family True. still continues to refer to him as Mr. Hayward. Yeah, and it's a kind of deference perhaps because he is the lawyer who's supposed to be i mean but the, i don't think it's deference yeah. i think it's you're not one of us oh mm. interesting you, know, you are you are mr hayward you're and family. you're not my friend mm -hmm. yeah but see i mean and again then why do they want him to call alonzo funny right because that that is inviting them in Right, because by you know it's like a doctor. You want a doctor to use your full name, right? But by calling you by your nickname, it's casual. I mean, and so I don't know. I, I self-determined. Like this yeah. is what I consider myself. So you show me the respect. And, yeah, and name me that. Yeah. I agree yeah. with that, Mike. I don't think it's a nickname. I think like that is his name. It's not. It's not a nickname. Like okay, I have I have a niece. Sure. And we, we call her Bug. That's her nickname that some people call her, but. Like, some people will adapt part of their name, and they're like, this is what I want to be known as. This is what I want to go by universally. And I think sure. that's the situation with Fonny. The term, the name Fonny is what he identifies as. And so, it's, yeah, you want to fight for us. You, you want to know my story. Get to know me. And I think it also speaks to knowing who, what his character is. Like, if you see me as Alonzo, you're just seeing what's on paper. But if mm -hmm. you know me and you see me as Fonny, you know that I'm a good person. You know that I take my time with my craft and my art and that this is something that I wouldn't have been capable of. So I think it's just like seeing him for who he is. Very good. I'm curious too. It's always, especially the first time you teach it anything, you sort of make notes like, I'll do this differently next time. So that's one question. And then what surprised you as you were teaching it? Like you didn't, oh, I didn't, hearing the student's reaction or, or how they read or took a scene or questions they had. I don't know if anything surprised me. And I don't mean that to no, to, to say that our students are not amazing. Like, <laughs> this is the third book we had together. So I, I was used to the, the, the great points that they would bring and the insight and engagement they had. Um, and, you know, a lot of the questions that they had, I had also I mentioned that this was my first time reading it along with them. 
Uh, and I felt affirmed in the, the questions that I had because they had them also. So nothing's coming to mind that caught me kind of off guard. What about you? I think that, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to teach this book was to bring up, you know, police um, profiling, racial profiling and mass incarceration and the police use of force against black men. And all of those issues are, of course, in this book. But what I, I think I mentioned this to you a couple of days ago, Mike, that what the kids really latched onto was this strength of family mm-hmm. and the presentation of love and family in this book that they found really very rewarding. Um, I thought that one of the best questions that the Rita asked at the end of the book, because it hadn't occurred to me at all, was why the second part of the book is called Zion. Mm. And I thought that was just as far as something I definitely want to do again next year. And the question that I'm still pondering that that's still knocking around in my head. I thought that that was a great <laughs> question. And I thought that I had not considered it or I had overlooked that title and it brought about a really great discussion. Yeah. yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit? What, what what was their reaction and what were you hoping to get out of them and asking that? That's a great, I wouldn't have thought of that either. I didn't That's know great. I was hoping to get out of them and asking it. Right. I really was just trying to get people thinking. Um, but some of the stuff that, or some of the responses that came up and things that we unpacked with that question, we went back to our um, religious imagery, you know, Zion is a holy place, kingdom of heaven, the promised land. And so it feels like, okay, we're going to, and, this is, it says part two, but it's like, there's only a few pages right, left yeah, in the book. And right. so you're like, all right, this is it. We're going to have redemption for our main character here and we're looking forward to it. And so that was one sense that came up. Um, this feels disconnected, but I think it's it's pertinent. Um, we related it to a Lauren Hill song, To Zion, which she writes for her son, Zion. Um, and, you know, that song wasn't even out when this book was written, but it just feels like such a strong connection because of the topic of the song. Lauren, Lauren Hill is... Um, talking about how she was at the beginning of her career and she got pregnant and she didn't know what to do. And now she's so glad that she has this baby Zion and it means everything to her and that's her world. Um, and so kind of liking, likening that to uh, Tisha's pregnancy and wondering if maybe they named the child Zion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those are some of the things that, that, I, that I jotted down from that. Yeah, that's really cool. And I think we also went back to the, um, at the beginning of the book, um, the, the quote at the beginning of the book is Mary, Mary, what are you going to name that pretty little baby? Mm-hmm. And so then we went to like, oh, wait, this is like the answer to that question. You know, this idea of names being so important, mm-hmm. identity being so important, family being right. so important. And here comes this, the birth at the end of the book. And that's a question that remains yep. open. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, just uh, completely unrelated, but you always have to worry about this as a literature teacher when there's a film that's out or, you know, made on the book. And a pretty good one. Is yeah. it? I haven't seen it. It's good. Did you reference it? Did you tell them not to see it? Did you watch it with them or discuss we did differences? Watch it as a class how is the end. film? I don't I I mean I know it won awards and it's, it's why good. they acclaim, but how's it compared to the, the book itself? Yeah, we watched it as as a class after we finished the book and we talked about some of the differences and compare and contrast. Um, yes, the film is amazing. Objectively, I guess it has won a lot of awards. I'm going to be honest, though, it wasn't my favorite. Okay. I really liked this book, mm-hmm. and I, the film to me didn't—I didn't get the same feeling from it. Um, Classic English yeah. teacher reaction. <laughs> Film's never as good. Right? Yeah. I just felt that there were so many details and feelings and things that moved through the book, um, whereas the tone of the movie 
didn't capture them or you, you just can't like you can't right. include everything and i get that um there were some things left out some story storylines and subplots left out in the film um it's just different it was a different vibe to me i think only one of our students had seen the film before mm-hmm. one film buff in our class yeah. um and so he's seen everything and so the students hadn't had come to it only after reading the book too and awesome. i think that was great um I have to put in that the film's incredibly beautiful mm-hmm. visually, the colors, it's just beautiful to watch. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine the music is great on an actual movie screen instead of in my classroom. I'm sure it was incredibly beautiful. <laughs> well, and it makes you excited to Let's see what he's going to bring to the Lion King. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> Being parents of young children, sure. I imagine we will see this. I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. And again, and again, and again, and You want to get into the ending? I, I do you want to talk about it? Well, wait, before we get okay. to the ending, ending, because there's more in this last yeah, section. Let's, let's read some quotes. Let's get to the language. I'm wondering. You know, I, well, I, was, I didn't have quotes I wanted to put, but this, this last section, Zion, is different from the rest of the book because it's Bonnie in isolation in prison by himself. And it's like a different, I can't remember. Is it narrated from his perspective? No, it's still Tish narrating. Mm-hmm. The, um, and for those of you who haven't read this, the first like they said, 90% is, I think, the trouble about my soul, and it's broken up into parts. And then right at the end, we're smash cut yeah. uh, to the conclusion, uh, which is called Zion. So it's not even four equal parts. It's really a chunk at the very end. That's like, I think, 10 pages in the version I read, not even. Um, uh, yeah, uh, and that's something else we haven't really gotten into. We're introduced to Fonny in the Present, by prison visits, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and as she goes, she's more and more pregnant, um, where you assume, at least when I was first reading it, that the climax of the move, of the book would be her giving birth. <laughs> it's a very different ending <laughs> that we'll get to. Uh, but uh, they're trying to raise money, of course, for the lawyer and to get bail so that he can be present with the baby, right? That, that's kind of what they're building towards at the end here. As you guys, I'm stalling. So we, get, <laughs> we get a little peek into, you know, Bonnie's mental state at the beginning of this right. second section, um, and just what he's telling himself, how he's how he's coping, uh, what he's thinking about, and it's it's diff- it's got a different tone to it. It's to mm-hmm. me, it's a little sad, uh, but oh, that, yeah. that's a, that's a big theme of the book is you know hope versus feelings of i don't know distress or what's the word i'm looking for like it, nothing can be done yeah hope in the scent in the face of this sort of insurmountable despair despair know. yeah and i think that you know we talked in class too about that Vani feels relief at the end when he knows he's not getting out yeah you know and that clinging to hope is exhausting mm. and because the book is through tish's point of view and we the dialogue with Fani happens during prison visits. You got to know he's it's ever harder to oh, cling right. to that on his end. But you don't really see that because we're in Tish's world and Sharon's going to Puerto Rico and all the efforts of all the family are trying to work toward this. But we talked about sort of the the sadness, but also the way that we can empathize with the fact that it just feels like a relief to him mm-hmm. to just be certain to about his faith. Yeah, because right. we talked about that at the beginning of, of this po- uh, podcast conversation about just the unexpected and the just what what is happening and so that other shoe drops and you're like okay this is 
this is life, I can get into it or whatever, instead of wondering what's next and feeling kind of in limbo. Or being um, hopeful and having that dash. Yeah, right? sure. That's, that would be worse. But I'm glad you said that Bonnie felt at peace knowing that because that was something else I had in reference to the title Zion, uh, that maybe he's just, if that's his resting place or that's his holy place, promised land, uh, to be okay with the situation. Like I have arrived, even though the outcome isn't what one would hope for or what one would want, uh, it's still an ending. It's still sure. knowing. There, there's a sense there too of like the transcendent hereafter, like this is awful, but there's a reward at the end, mm. maybe after this is over, mm -hmm. so to speak. Well, and uh, this is stupid, I apologize, but it's almost the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern or did version of To Kill a Mockingbird, where you have this lawyer who's doing everything, but this is the people who he's trying to help, right? And they're just in jail, like they don't know. And it's exhausting to, to think that there could be something like, and in To Kill a Mockingbird, it's horrifying that, you know, the guy makes a break for it at the end, but at least that's agency. And here we have Phony, he's in prison and he's so exhausted from hoping, it makes sense that he's almost relieved. Now, unfortunately for Tish, now she's lost her raison d'etre, right? Like for the last, for her entire pregnancy, she's been trying to get him out of prison. It's- Except the baby. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, she wants the family. She, she wants the family that she grew up right. with and that's now gone, right? And so that's what her motivating force was to create a family. It's tragic. <laughs> she has a much more tragic end than he does in some way. Um, well, we still haven't gotten to the most tragic end. <laughs> All right. Nick wants to talk about the ending. Go. Well, I mean, <laughs> Get into it. I, I feel bad about spoiling a book, but it is 55 years old. Uh, <laughs> I mean, spoilers for something that came out before, a decade before I was born. Um, so Frank can't take it, right? Um, we in class... Um, Mike and I taught Indian Camp, the uh, Hemingway book. Mm -hmm. And after hearing a woman uh, struggle for two days to give birth, the father kills himself and Frank kills himself. It's something about masculinity, toxic masculinity, but it's also he wants to do anything. And between his wife not wanting him to and literally him not being able to, no matter, like in his own little way, he can't, uh, he gives up. It's tragic. <laughs> it's really sad. And that was the thing I did not see coming. And like, yeah, right. I, I mean, knowing totally. who Baldwin was, I knew this one was not going to be a fairy tale where everyone got out of prison, they got married and who lived happily ever ever. But it, to me, it feels so true being an essayist. I wonder if this didn't happen to someone he knew in some way. Um, because it just, that turn is so brusque. Um, it stopped me dead. Like, and again, you know, I'm, I'm reading these things. I'm plowing through books because it's better than thinking uh, about myself. Uh, but at a certain point, I just stopped. And then I reread that whole section again because it's, it is, it was something. And I don't know, I mean, Mike, uh, you read that because they wanted to do this episode. How did you feel reading it? No, I'll say, and as you're saying this, and I'm, it, and maybe I'm just getting maudlin in my middle age or late middle age, but this was a hard book to read. It just like really hit me emotionally just because we're still dealing with the issues of racism. It felt so bad for, for Tish and her family. And then when he dies at the end, you know, it hurt me, to be honest. It was hard. Um, and I didn't see that coming at all. Um, and it just makes me sad in a way. Although I think... The, it's ambiguous, it, is it not? Right, with it is at ambiguous. The end? 
And so there's still a, you know, a sense of optimism there that there's, there's, it's not completely despondent and, you know, slit your wrists, wrists kind of thing. But um, overall, just the way he crafts the characters, I mean, I really felt like I was a part of this family. I was really hoping for, for justice um, or relief. And so um, it was hard in a way that, you know, yeah. maybe it was just, I don't know, it, it, it hit me hard. Um, more so than other works. Maybe it's because it's fresh and you know, I'm used to teaching things or there's stuff I've read and, and taught over and over. But um, yeah, it was powerful that way. And in a way, the work hadn't hit me in, in a long time, to be honest. So, Well, and I mean, like the fact that she hears about Tish, like Tish gets a phone call and it's from one of Fani's sisters, right? And he has two sisters, right? It's Adrienne and Sheila. Mm-hmm. And they're indistinguishable. Like they're just kind of generic characters. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that it's not either her mom or his mom, the fact that it's one of the sisters to me just, it's, it's somehow, I, I, like, I, I don't know, it just, it, again, it feels more real. It doesn't feel literary. It, like, it just feels like, it, like you said, it's just draining. Like, there's this moment, she just had a very emotional moment, and now she's gutted again. Like, it's it feels like a litany. Like, this woman will never have this moment with her family that she so wants. Um, it's, 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 it's really hard. So we, so we added the plot twist of, of, uh, Frank's death, but how did you approach the ending there? What is, is it optimistic? Is it, cause it's quite, it's a little unclear where Stefani is or what's happening there. What did y'all say? Or what's your read on it? I just, I have a quote that I wrote in my book that one of our students said, so I'll give Andrew Washington credit for this, Andrew. but I thought that he, I thought this was really profound. And he said that since both. Frank's death and the baby's birth are presented at the same time. It's hard to sit with either and feel it. Hmm. Yeah. And I thought that was really profound. I also think that it hits someone of our age or someone, you know, who is a parent differently than it hit them. Hmm. We had one student whose mom was also reading this book as part of a book club with, um, you know, other oh, wow. women. Right. And she said that she talked to her mom about it and she was like, did we even read the same book? Mom, mm, because really? you're talking mm-hmm. about very different parts than I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I love sure. So I think that there, I don't know that, I mean, they, they were shocked by Frank's death, but I don't know that they felt it the same way that we would have. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about that? Um, well, I, the comment that I had that I wanted to share wasn't necessarily about the students' take on it, but um, something that I, I remember saying in class that speaks to Nick's point about it feeling very real as opposed to a work of literature. Um, that's what I get from the ending. It's not it's not a neat ending with a nice pretty bow on it, and this is how right. it, it concludes, and you you know have it all wrapped up nicely. It just stops telling the story. These you can you get the sense that these characters continue to live and go on beyond what's on the pages. Um, and that to me is beautiful. I like stories like that. It, it does feel like real life. Like we don't have a, we don't have a conclusion to it. There's more, but that's life. Yeah. And you know, and again, birth is such a great metaphor here because like it's incredible physical pain for a moment of, you know, joy. And then it's, Coupled with this incredible mental pain, like this emotional pain as well, uh, of the world falling apart. Um, and I believe Frank was fired for stealing. Like, again, it's this continuing fall from grace as he's lost everything. He's become an alcoholic. He's stealing now. But he was stealing for his family. But he was right? stealing for his family. Right. He's very uh, Les Mis. Um, 
And then, of course, the end of it is uh, Tish describing Fonny working on a statue as the baby cries and cries and cries. So what I do remember our students um, saying about this part is wondering if that was a dream sequence or a flash forward. Right. Just that it's elusive. Like, we don't right. know um, what was intended by that. Yeah. What, what were y'all's thoughts about it? I, I, see, since the whole book reels le- uh, feels like it's told first person you know narration as opposed to omniscience to me it felt almost like a fantasy a dream like they were back together and it was the family she always wanted uh as opposed to flashing forward right like it it almost feels like a place at a time as though she has like a nervous break uh we have kids reading um slaughterhouse five right now it feels like that like it's so emotional so overwhelming for a second she snaps to where she wants to be Mm. right and even though the baby's crying they're together that's how I read it. Hmm. How'd you read it? I took it more hopeful in the sense that like Fonny was out um, because we didn't go into details of the plot, but the way I read it is because there's no witness, he gets out on bail. But I mm-hmm. read it sort of as a very tenuous thing. Like at any moment, something could happen. And he That's the crack. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. And so it's sort of optimistic, but very um, shaky in, in that sense. That was my read. I don't know. Shannon, what about you? I mean, I read it like a dream yeah. because I think that the baby crying wakes her up. You know, that yeah. she, you know, there's the break after the birth and it's Bonnie is working on the wood and from far away, but coming nearer. And maybe that's being someone who's been woken by a baby a lot. But, you know, like that's where she wants to go mentally. That's the dream. But then coming nearer is this reality of the baby cries and cries and cries. She is the only one who can get up to take care of mm. the baby. And it's almost, you know, like it means to wake the dead. I had written in my book, like, who is it trying to wake? Frank? Mm-hmm. You know, is it trying to, is the baby crying and attempt to, like, let's try and restore things or, you know, make it as if this whole thing didn't happen to where Bonnie is here and Frank is here. I don't know. But I think I read it more like a dream. I didn't I didn't stick with it either way. I just kind of took it for what it was. Like, he... he Right. It seems to me like Baldwin is letting us absolutely put the pieces together for right. ourselves as the audience, as the readers. And I guess I chose not to. I said, okay, yeah. I appreciate what you've done as an artist. <laughs> no, which I like too, what you said absolutely. before. And then I love that the, the parents and the child have different views. I mean, to me, that's the definition of great literature. You read right. it at different mm-hmm. phases and the work changes with you or you revisit it and see it in a new way. So well, that's I mean, excellent. It's the metaphor of the pain of creation, right? Like uh, the the whole end of the book, the book has set up a world that it's gradually destroying the whole way. Uh, lives are being destroyed. Families are being destroyed. Uh, reputations are being destroyed. At the end, we have a moment of creation, right? It's painful creation, right? The, the baby's crying. She gave birth. And now they're going to create a statue. But there's still hope, right? Uh, whatever that is. Uh, but it's, 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 a, it's a nice little simple way to... And a story. It's simple. What? <laughs> I mean, it's a nice way book? to end a very heavy book. It's a nice way to end a very heavy book. It's an appropriate ending, yeah. I would say. Yeah. It's far from simple. A Baldwin ending. Yeah. Um, so, I guess around the horn, would you teach this again? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm very much so. So, you, you've, you've rewritten the syllabus for next year, and this is number one. Uh, no. Between the World of Me. Uh, yeah, I like the order in that. I, I like no. that this came later in the term. Good. In terms of all the work she taught, where do you think this would rank? Not that you're always teaching to student preference, but what were their thoughts on your selection? I think this was their favorite. Was it? Well, I, I do think the students also really like Between the World and Me, especially to kick things off. Like, let's let's get into it and, you know, talk about it not in this um, literary way, but just in the sense of the topics themselves. Sure. Um, 
but I think this was their favorite. And I also think the the assignment we did for it was their favorite mm-hmm. because there were so many conversations in the book that happened around a meal or a kitchen table sure. or, you know, drinks or whatever. We asked students to go home and, and recreate that with their parents oh, and families great. and siblings I love that. and try to unpack some of the themes over dinner conversation. And, you know, that that was one of my favorite class discussions is hearing what they talked about at home and getting into a little more. So, yeah, I think this was this was a favorite. It's up there. Mm-hmm. It's up there. Mm-hmm. Good. I think um, when you guys come back on, we should do one of the books you think you're going to cut for next year and talk about why. Hmm. Well, just because we have a lot of positive feedback because this is the first season. Everyone's to show their best. But we should get into some books that... <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe after another year. You know, the first time is always sort of like you're seeing, you're feeling things. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Then, then does that go against the title, Required Reading? Because now it's like, oh, no, not required. <laughs> well, no, because a question they were required. Mark required. <laughs> and trust me, there are books that we require the kids to read that they wish we hadn't required them to read. <laughs> um, Shannon, what do you think? Oh, absolutely. Teach us again. Is that what you're still asking? Yeah, well, I'm just wrapping this up. We're we're ending our conversation politely. Uh, Mike, what about you? Did you enjoy it? Definitely, yeah. And it would be fun to teach um, and work into our curriculum in some way. Yeah, I I feel bad that I had not read any of him. Well, let me say that again. I had read chunks of essays of his in, like, document readers, right? Like, um... APUS mm-hmm. um, in grad school when we did um, kind of the, the built environment, uh, urban studies. We, we read a lot of him as well. I just wish I had read stuff in a classroom setting because I read this book. It's 100 and or 200 pages. So I put it down pretty quickly. Um, I think it would have been better if I could have discussed it at the time. But that's what I will say. I'd recommend it to people to pick up because it's not a, it's a hard book emotionally to read, but it's not hard to get into. It's not like it's very complex in structure. Yeah, very accessible. Yeah. Um, and all too relevant, again, for the, a lot of issues we didn't even talk about today. You know, I, I like know. this book for a book club or a class discussion. I, I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much if I were reading it on my own. Like, I needed somebody to talk through this with right. and say, are, what are you getting from it? Like, yeah. just to bounce ideas off of. Yeah, and, and in that case, I would watch the movie because the movie gets the themes well. I think the book is better. I agree with mm-hmm. you. Um, but How's then the movie end when we were talking about uh, the ending? A musical number. Okay. Yeah. Don't, you know, I'll watch but, it. But movies, I feel like movies have to end a little happier because you want to have a good movie. Of course. We talked about that too. Yeah. 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 yeah you you want to sell tickets, right? Mm-hmm. Life is enough of a downer that, yeah. 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 That's fair. I don't know if you've been talking this book up too, Nick, uh, because more than ever before, I had probably five or six kids in AP pick this up as their choice oh, book great. that they wanted to read. So yeah. cool. it got, I mean, I don't remember ever, anyone ever picking it up before, um, and several of them read it this time, which was cool. I, I mean, people have been asking me 20th century, and I've been mentioning James Baldwin, but um, so I, I don't, I, I never think I make an impact with students. Uh, but I, I, have been, <laughs> I, have been, I have been talking about just him in general, because he's one of those people who was writing at a time when there's a lot of public speaking, so you can hear him reading his own essays, and to hear it in his voice, he has a very specific way of, of speaking as well that just rings. Like like you said, he has a, a music, a poetry in his book that comes through in the way he reads it too. So I kind of love, I love to hear him talk. Um, uh, we'll go around the horn. I'll start with Mike just so you guys can prepare. Uh, Mike, what you reading right now? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> I have nothing prepared. What do, have I read anything lately? I'll tell you what. You were plugging, um, you and I were talking about the Hemingway doc. Uh, right. Ken Burns just finished one. Would you, why don't you recommend some Hemingway for us? Um, Hemingway, well, we just did a couple of the short stories, which were good, and they held up. Um, and I think they're in the collection, 16 short stories and two poems or something like that. Are they? I thought I mean, so. Well, 
we did Indian camp in the day's wait. Um, Fantastic. Which were good. I mean, they're like. Do you want to cry? You can <laughs> pack a lot in in a 50 minute lesson with those. Um, but reading for pleasure, I'm just picking through New Yorkers right now. I need a, I need a novel to pick up. So I'm interested um, what other are, are reading. Yeah, so I don't I've got nothing. I should have known better. <laughs> well, for those of you uh, who are interested, I got him to read the graphic novel uh, by Burke. That's uh, true. Yeah, we can talk. Yeah. Burke Bachter, uh, my friend Dahmer, about yeah, people who went to high school read. with Jeff Dahmer. Uh, graphic which novel. Which is phenomenal. Yeah, and it was it was interesting um, and well done. And some of our students are reading it currently. They read it in like two days. Yeah. Can, they they want to do nothing but talk about it with in us. an hour. Um, yeah. There's a, there's a lot more to it. So yeah, that would be the last thing I read. My friend Dahmer, the graphic novel. But, and, you, and you'd recommend it. I would recommend it. Shannon? I read The Overstory. Mike's going to be talking about it a lot because I really loved it. Um, sure. And it's by Richard Powers, and it's about trees, and it's about climate change. Mm -hmm. And so very different topics than this book, but it goes at a really very slow pace, and it just felt to me really like the antidote to everything that's frenetic and crazy in our world. And so it was just, it's a story of a group of about eight people who are at the beginning of the book, they're all strangers, but then they sort of each individually sort of get involved in the study of trees and sort of working toward or having relationships. And that sounds so weird, but it really was a beautiful book and it's big and deep and profound. I recommend it. Just in time for Earth Day, right? Just, just in time for Earth, Earth Day. Day. Yeah. It's Earth Day. Yeah. Convenient. Larry? Um, I feel like I'm a little bit cheating a little bit here because the book I'm currently reading, I don't know, I'm only like five pages into oh, it. That counts. You started. That yeah, counts. I started. I started, but I can't say too much about it because I haven't read that much of it. But it's um, Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong. And actually, the full title is Minor Feelings, colon, an Asian American Reckoning. Um, so it's just a, it's a collection of essays. Um, of her personal experiences with racial discrimination. And she's pointing out the feelings that it brings up usually for, for people of color who are on the receiving end of that discrimination, feelings of um, irritation, paranoia, depression, whatever it may be, um, and just what that's looked like for her and her life in particular. Um, well, you inspired me. Um, I will allude to what you just said. Read um, Interior Chinatown, uh, which is about an actor, a young Asian actor, who wants to go from background character to kung fu guy, and it's just referring to these kind of tropes that Asians fall into. Um, but fiction or fiction? Uh, it is by a guy who was an actor, so it's kind of a fictionalized version of things he witnessed and saw. Um, I'm going to. I was. I at one point said I'm going to read something by every Nobel laureate, so that's where I am. Uh, so I'm going to recommend an action-packed drama set in a monastery in the 13th century. Uh, Umberto echoes the name of the rose. Oh yeah. Which um, I had seen the Sean Connery movie, um, but I had not seen it. Speaking of uh, somehow literate to now, uh, relative to now, it's about a guy who's willing to murder and kill to hide the truth um, and the power of books and the power of knowledge and the power of literature, and how sometimes people will determine that truth or knowledge is a dangerous thing and be willing to kill for it. Uh, it's fascinating. It's fun. Umberto Echo's got a kind of wry sense of humor and an incredibly vivid way to describe things. Um, 
And so I'd recommend it if you can find it. Uh, the book is easy to find. The movie's harder, but it's Sean Connery and a young Christian Slater playing <laughs> monks in Italy. Uh, it's just, it's it's a cartoon movie, but it's really cool. Um, very beautifully written. Yeah, I remember reading that in high school and loving it. It's, it's so big. I don't think you'd ever it'd be a tough sell. It'd be a tough sell so long. now, but it, it moves. I oh, mean, it's wonderful, yeah. uh, Sean Connery plays a Sherlock Holmes kind of guy. In the, like, you know, he's William of Baskerville, and Baskerville knows everything. And it's just, it's, it's very fun. I enjoyed it a lot. I couldn't put it down. And uh, Dave Negus was excited I was reading in Italian. So, you know, that, everything works out in the end. Uh, but I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Shannon Hip and Loretta Williams for joining Mike and I uh, around our usual round table here. Yeah, this was awesome. It was fun. Thank yeah. you all. Yeah. Come back. Um, yeah, come back. We, we, we like having our regular guests um, because you guys now know how it works. And it, it makes it smoother and easier. I keep saying I'm going to pick a, a lighter something to come back and talk <laughs> about. But everything I've been here to discuss is pretty, pretty heavy. Well, uh, we appreciate you coming back anyway. Uh, so uh, stay tuned every other week. We're going to give you some required reading. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Awesome.